Well, good evening, everybody. It's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mir, Alberta. Uh, I am also the chairman of the board of an organization called WS Full Steam Ahead. Um, if any of you, if anybody out there doesn't know, WS Full Steam Ahead was uh, was was born uh, out of out of necessity. So what we've seen in the past two years is an obvious uh, erroneous path that our government has taken and and forced on us, and they just don't seem to be giving up. During that adventure, I was thrown in jail, uh, charged with contempt of court. And the judge looked at me and he said, Mr. Scott, you need to start following the science. So that's what I've been doing. I've been following the science. And uh, what, what I found is that it seems like a lot of people have forgotten what we learned in elementary school about science. Uh, science isn't necessarily an answer. It's all about a question. It's about asking a question and then uh, trying to disprove it. And whenever anyone's doing that these days, it seems like those in charge, those in authority just jump on them and they attack them relentlessly. The media cancels them, um, social media cancels them. And we're left wondering if we're asked to follow science, why is it that we are not listening to scientists who have concerns or questions about issues of the day? So what we did tonight is we reached out to Dr. Peter McCullough and I'm sure most of you know who Dr. Peter McCullough is, uh, and Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Uh, Dr. Seneff has recently been featured on Fox News um, over an op-ed she did that outlined some potential hazards due to the COVID vaccine um, and, and neurological issues. So I watched that stuff, and while it's a little bit out of my scope, I, I, I understand what she's saying to the point where um, I'm willing to say, hey, maybe we should start following the science we should start paying attention to science and ask these questions and get proper answers before we hurt anybody so um i guess i will bring on dr mccullough and dr seneff i'm gonna let them introduce themselves because their credentials are it's a pretty long list well good evening dr seneff and dr mccullough thank you very much for joining us on my little home-built show today so great okay. so glad to be here yeah, thanks, Chris. Awesome. Um, Dr. Seneff, I believe you are uh, linking in from Hawaii, correct? I am, yes. Lucky and me. <laughs> it's beautiful nice. here. And Dr. McCullough, you're in Dallas? That's right. Okay, so our times are, are a little bit different, not too much, though. Um, I guess I'll start with you, Dr. Seneff. Uh, would you mind just uh, letting the viewers know who you are, uh, your credentials, and, and why you've chosen to speak out in regards to the COVID-19 vaccine? Okay, uh, I'm a senior research scientist at MIT in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I have uh, several degrees from MIT. My entire education is at MIT with a bachelor's in biology, master's EE and PhD in electrical engineering and computer science. Uh, I've been very interested in autism and I've spent a lot of, much uh, of the last 15 years studying autism to figure out what's causing the <laughs> epidemic in America. I think there's great concern for autism. I uh, landed on glyphosate, the active ingredient in the um, herbicide Roundup uh, in 2012. I think it's a major player in the autism epidemic. And the result of my efforts, uh, deep research into glyphosate, resulted in this book, Toxic Legacy, how the weed killer glyphosate is destroying our health and the environment. So I fully believe glyphosate is a serious problem with our health. I think it explains why we have an epidemic and many diseases in this country, chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity and heart disease and 
um, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, all these problems that we're seeing, I think are connected to chronic exposure to glyphosate in the food. And those are also conditions that are precursors, they're predictors of bad outcomes with COVID. I think it's all connected. I think the countries that are, are exposed to a lot of glyphosate are the same countries, overall, more or less, the same countries that are struggling to get control of COVID. <clears throat> Places where glyphosate is used less have a much better chance of seeing COVID as a mild disease. And so the vaccines, I mean, as soon as those vaccines became, I became aware they were working on them with the, um, the rush to get them to market and to skip all the steps and because we're in an emergency and we, we have to have something to fight it. Um, I was immediately very suspicious and very worried. And I didn't know much, uh, really anything about the messenger RNA technology until, um, until I discovered this was what was going on. So this was really before the vaccines were even released. I started looking into the messenger RNA technology and what I saw did not impress me at all. It made me very worried about potential uh, adverse outcomes from the vaccines. And so, um, so I've just been really switched over to these vaccines since uh, 2000, since they were first, before they were even introduced a year ago. I've really focused my studies on these vaccines. Uh, and the more I look, the more worried I get. So something I just want to point out really quickly, um, when it comes to speaking out against products that are approved and uh, our authorities tell us that they're safe for us, I really appreciate that people like you take the time to look at it further and ask these questions because I'm only 42 years old, but I, I kind of paid attention to history a little bit in, in school. And I realized that there have been times in history where our authorities and our regulatory agencies have told us that things are safe uh, and that we can use them and just don't question it because that's we, we're scientists. We know what we're doing. Um, some good examples are uh, DDT. Uh, thalidomide was a big one. Yes. Um, another one that people don't realize was um, radium face cream to make you glow. Now, now these are all things that uh, the authority and the regulatory bodies told us don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, they drove down the street spraying DDT on families to prove how safe it was. And then only after a few years where brave men and women were willing to stand up and ask the questions, did anything change and lives uh, were started, uh, started saving lives. So, you know, thank you. Thank you very much for, for bothering to be a scientist and ask those questions, even though it's not always easy. Right. So in your op-ed that you recently put out, um, linking potentially the COVID-19 uh, vaccines to neurological diseases, do you mind speaking on that a little bit and uh, try and in as much in layman's terms as you can? I know yes. I, when I listen to you speak, I just, uh, the, your, the depth of, of knowledge and understanding that you have on the subject is pretty, it's pretty vast. And all of us, well, most of us don't have that. So if you mind, right. if you if you don't mind speaking on that, uh, just in in plain English as best you can for us. I'll try. I know that's always the hard challenge, isn't it? But let me try. I want to just say first of all that if you think about it, the vaccine is an injection in the arm muscle, that is already past the mucosal barriers and past the blood barriers. You're injecting something, a poison, beyond those barriers that would usually face a virus first. So you've missed those opportunities to clear this vaccine by virtue of it skipping those stages. So it's already kind of at a high, it's already at a stage of, a, of an infection beyond even the blood of a severe infection of COVID. And it actually, the body responds as if it's a severe COVID infection. And so this is what um, concerns me because it's the severe infections, of course, that are 
those are the ones that raise the alarm bells in the immune cells to get them to produce tremendous levels of antibodies. So there's no question they work in the sense of making antibodies, they work. But that doesn't mean they work as a protect, you know, for protection against the virus because, and I predicted this and I wrote a paper with Dr. Greg Nye, a long paper, which was published in May and uh, on these vaccines. And uh, we predicted in that paper that we were gonna start to see variants showing up much more rapidly than they had before because of the pressure of the vaccine itself. The vaccine exposes the virus to all these antibodies, which allows the virus then to mutate into such a way as to avoid those antibodies. So you can predict that it's gonna cause rapid evolution of the virus and the virus is then gonna be resistant to the vaccine. So you, you get the antibodies, a very good antibody response and over a very short window after your second vaccine and after a couple of weeks, you get those antibodies in there. You're, you're pretty well protected, I think, from infection with the original strain, but that's not even true anymore now with Omicron. Omicron has really figured out how to resist the antibodies that the vaccine is producing. So now we're getting shots with our boosters. We're getting shots that are, are forcing us to produce antibodies to an obsolete, obsolete protein. It's an obsolete version of the spike protein. So it's really very ridiculous to get those shots. And Israel is now coming out with a fourth booster. And, they're, and they're, there's reports out of Israel saying it's not working against Omicron. So we're going to be in a constant treadmill of booster shot after booster shot um, with a wrong model that's useless against the strain that's now out there. Uh, and then we're risking all the damage that these vaccines are causing. And I believe they're causing increasing damage with every shot. They're, they're really disturbing the immune function in a severe way. This is what we're seeing in research coming out of China, out of India, amazing papers that we've been reading. And, and we're working on a long paper right now that talks about this research. Very, very clear to me that these vaccines are messing up basic immune uh, response. The innate immunity is being messed up by these vaccines in such a way that you're actually less re resistant to all kinds of other infections including things like herpes and shingles. People have Bell's palsy. Uh, people are getting uh, infections in the liver. I mean, there's various um, infective agents that are now more likely to come alive because of the da damage to the innate immune system by the vaccines. And this also includes cancer because cancer, the innate immunity is what protects you from cancer. And I am hearing lots of reports from my friends who are um, naturopaths of, of, uh, of um, reappearance of cancer among patients that had had it in control before after the vaccine. Now, the one I'm most worried about is neuro, neurodegenerative disease. And, and I have done a lot of studying in that area, neurodegenerative disease co consequent to the vaccines. And I think I understand the process and it's very, very scary. So it's been shown, again, I have lots and lots of papers behind what I'm saying here, but there are studies that show that the vaccine it goes into the arm, the immune cells respond to the muscle cells that are being injured because they're producing lots of spike protein. They can't stop themselves from doing that. That's what the vaccine does. It allows the cells to, it forces the cells to make spike protein against their will. And the muscle cells start screaming, you know, we've got a big problem here. The immune cells come in, they take up the vaccine as well because these are lipid particles. They look like LDL particles. The, the cells don't know better. They take up these particles and now the immune cells are loaded up and they start making lots of spike protein. That is extremely abnormal. In fact, these immune cells, the dendritic cells, the B cells, the T cells, they don't have the ACE2 receptor. So normally they don't take up the virus. It's other cells that take it up. So these guys who are supposed to be fighting the virus suddenly are seeing all this spike protein that they can't stop making. And then they're just like completely panicked. I mean, I think the immune, I think of them as little, you know, 
beings, but they, they, they have all these complex responses that they do to things. But what ends up happening is they rush into the lymph system to, to inform the, the B cells and the T cells that we've got to do something with this poison that we're making, we can't stop making. And they end up concentrated in the spleen, the spleen, the liver, the ovaries. This is what's seen in studies where they traced, where does the vaccine go? These immune cells are going into the spleen and the spleen Let is the center. Let me interrupt you for just one moment. Um, before I forget, so this is a, a great time to introduce Dr. McCullough, uh, because I remember early on reading and uh, listening to Dr. McCullough speaking out on the hazards of the plan the government had, as in just this vaccine crusade and vaccinate everybody. And I remember hearing many doctors, including Dr. McCullough, speak up and say, hey, you know, this might not be the best idea because of this. And you just said, it, it, uh, some of the, th the things that I remember Dr. McCullough spe uh, speaking on. So if you don't mind, just hold that thought um, yeah. and, and let, let us digest what you've just said. Dr. McCullough, uh, thank you as well for joining us. And do you mind just quickly introducing yourself and letting us know who you are and what you're doing? And then while um, uh, Dr. Senef is, is continuing um, with her thing, uh, we'll just get your thoughts and opinions on that as well. Thanks, Chris. I was just like part of the audience. I I felt like I was in uh, graduate school at MIT. <clears throat> that was fantastic. <laughs> Dr. Sarah was on a roll. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist cardiologist, and I'm also trained in epidemiology, uh, <clears throat> and I'm in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. So today was a, a hospital day for me. I spent about half my time in clinical practice and half my time as an author and editor uh, and a clinical investigator. I, uh, I, I've been focusing my whole career actually on inter interactions between the, the cardiovascular system and the kidneys. And that's been my major research focus prior to COVID-19. Um, and I'm the president of the Cardiorenal Society of America, the inaugural editor of the textbook Cardiorenal Medicine. And, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. I have my uh, bachelor's degree from Baylor here in Texas and then medical school at University of Texas Southwestern. I went on uh, to do my medicine training at the University of Washington in Seattle uh, after three years of service. I did uh, I, my graduate studies at University of Michigan, and then from there had leadership positions in Southeast Michigan, and and then I wanted to finish my my career where I started down in Texas, uh, down here in Dallas, Texas, uh, focused on heart and kidney disease until COVID nineteen hit, and so uh, when this hit, I dropped everything uh, to focus my scholarship on the pandemic, and much like Dr. Senef, <coughs> I've picked up on you know, some key areas initially on early treatment. And then in the second half of the pandemic on vaccine and safety and efficacy. And I did, uh, and I, I just like Dr. Senoff, I do believe in the power of publication. I have uh, over 660 peer review publications in the National Library of Medicine, 52 on COVID-19. And, uh, and, and I have also, you know, periodicals. I've published a whole series of op-eds in the Hill last year. Uh, and one of the ones in August I published, Chris, it says the great gamble of the COVID-19 vaccine program and I outlined the reasons I thought it was a gamble in part uh, because of the lipid nanoparticles, uh, the genetic technology platform, where these particles were gonna go, what was gonna happen when the spike protein was produced. Maybe we have Dr. Senoff pick it up from here because uh, right now the immune cells unprepared were racing to the spleen and it was getting pretty exciting. <laughs> like point one thing out before we continue Dr. Senoff. So the, um, the lipid nanotechnology, I believe, was developed in the University of British Columbia right here in Canada, mm. as far as I know. Um, one thing that, that's caught my attention is that in Canada, 
usually when a Canadian does something great, we shout it from the rooftops. Like, look at the, do you remember the Canada arm on the, on the, on the spacecraft, the space station? That was news. And we were so proud of that. We talked about it all the time. But now we have um, arguably the key component in these new vaccines that were supposed to save the world. And it was developed right here in Canada at UBC. And we haven't heard anything about it. So I'm wondering if uh, if maybe they're not as proud of it as they should be or if there's a reason why. But anyway, <laughs> I just thought I would throw that out there. That's that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the technology, they've been working on this message RNA technology for decades. There's actually papers from the 1990s about this. And then they've been working out all the details for how to manipulate the messenger RNA to make it um, jump through all the hoops that it needs to jump through in order to get people to make lots of antibodies. And what that means is they have disturbed it greatly. I mean, this is one of the things that really concerns me. Uh, the messenger RNA in the vaccine is it codes for the same protein, the spike protein that the virus produces with a little twist. It has a little uh, change that makes the protein less likely to go into the membrane, so which causes it to stick on the ACE2 receptor and disable it, which is how you get things like myocarditis, I believe. But that's a whole other story. We still haven't gotten to the neurodegeneration yet. But um, they have changed the messenger RNA in big ways to make it extremely not natural, to make it look like human messenger RNA. So it completely, when the cell picks it up, normally if they pick up viral RNA, the cells know it's coming from a virus and they initiate an immediate response that helps to get the whole immune response going. But they got, it's stealth, they got fooled because it, it looks like human RNA and it's been engineered to be extremely efficient at pouring out spike protein at a high rate and also to resist breakdown. They've done all these changes and you can read about the details of all those changes that they've done to the messenger RNA to make it work so well. And then they've also put on in, in this cationic lipid, which is a, a synthetic lipid, very toxic, lots unknown about the cationic lipid, but that does cause the... Um, mRNA to be much more efficient at, at opening up and making the protein. They've really carefully crafted it to perfect it as a weapon to make the immune cells get right away to start making tons and tons of antibodies to it, because that's kind of the only option they have. So their goal their is goal to do that, and they've succeeded. But that doesn't mean they've succeeded in making a product that's useful because of all these other issues that come about by virtue of having that situation in the immune cells. They are very, very stressed. They go to the spring. They're extremely stressed. They're, they're crying out to the T cells and B cells, make some antibodies to this stuff. We've got to get rid of it. They're making lots and lots of it and they have nowhere to put it. So they end up packaging it up inside something, little lipid particles, which are called exosomes and releasing them into, in, out into the external space. So I picture these immune cells congregating in the spleen, um, releasing, making uh, spike protein like there's no tomorrow, unable to turn it off, and spilling it out uh, into the medium as these little exosomes. And those exosomes are extremely dangerous because they travel along the vagus nerve up to the brain, over to the heart, over to the liver. They're basically moving up the vagus nerve to these major organs of the body. And when they land, they induce an inflammatory response where they land, which is gonna cause injury to the cells. And that's how you get the inflammatory heart problems. You get the inflammatory brain problems, which end up with all kinds of neurological issues. And it's particularly focused on the nerve fibers. I believe that's true. And I've, I've, I see that from looking at the VAERS database because the VAERS reports are very, very interesting. And I've been looking through them, looking for counts on various you know, conditions. And what you can find is a lot of evidence of inflammation on various nerves that are in the head. Things like um, the uh, tinnitus, uh, ringing in the ear, which is infl inflammation in the auditory nerve. 
uh, people are having difficulty swallowing. They're getting all kinds of reactions to vagus nerve inflammation, like nausea and dizziness. And, um, and then they're getting um, Bell's palsy, which is the facial nerve, and mm -hmm. migraine headaches, which is the um, trigeminal nerve. All of these nerves in the head, and there's issues with the optic nerve, the eyes, all those nerves are getting inflamed, I believe, with exosomes that are traveling up the vagus nerve, pouring into the brain. Uh, as a consequence of these immune cells in the spleen, unable to know what to do with all this pro all this nasty protein that they're making. Spike is a very toxic protein. It's been shown to have prion-like -like characteristics. And that's where what makes me worry so much about Parkinson's disease, because I've read a lot about Parkinson's. My mother died of it before she was my age. So I know it well. I've always been interested in Parkinson's disease. And I, I know that they have understood. In fact, they've understood that if you cut the, the people who have had their vagus, vagus nerve severed, are very protected against Parkinson's disease. So they know that it's coming from something that's traveling along the vagus nerve. And they know that you can have an infection with a, a microbe in your gut, a pathogen, that releases a prion-like protein. And that prion-like protein gets taken up by immune cells, carried into the spleen. And in the spleen, it activates a, a response that ends up upregulating alpha-synuclein. Alpha-synuclein is the misfolded protein linked to Parkinson's disease. And it actually fights uh, viruses. Alpha-synuclein is an antimicrobial protein. So the spleen has put, starts making alpha-synuclein. And then the, the prion-like protein that's uh, there causes the alpha-synuclein to misfold. And all of that gets packaged up into exosomes and shipped to the brain. And, that, and it ends up in the substantia nigra, where you get then injury to substantia nigra that causes Parkinson's disease. This is all worked out with Parkinson's disease. And it is exactly what we're seeing here with these vaccines. And I'll tell you, when I mentioned that, when I gave that short clip at, on Fox News, I got tons and tons of email from people telling me their, their sob stories. And some of them are really shocking. Like the person was diagnosed with Parkinson's shortly after they got their second jab. And within the year, um, they were so bad off, they died. That's extremely rapid development of Parkinson's disease. Um, usually it takes 14 years between diagnosis and death. So that is really, really disturbing to me. Yeah, and we're seeing we're seeing a lot of things that we've never seen before. So, Dr. McCullough, um, it was actually your social media where I discovered Dr. Sanef's op-ed. So, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you are in agreement with the with the uh, the science and the theories that she's presenting and the potential for these dangers. And and I would say that that they were known ahead of time uh, in a paper uh, from. Uh, <coughs> From China, in 2018, for instance, it was a wonderful uh, figure of of where the lipid nanoparticles go in the human body, and uh, we know now from human autopsy studies of individuals who've died after vaccination that uh, we certainly can find spike protein, just as Dr. Senoff says, uh, widely throughout the body, uh, including the brain, uh, the heart, uh, bone marrow, other vital organs. Uh, papers by Jun Zeng and myself from our lab uh, demonstrated that the spike protein clearly can damage endothelial cells that line the blood vessels and cause blood clotting. And I've been struck now with the, the density of literature. There are over a thousand peer-reviewed publications now of vaccine injuries, most of them mechanistic studies of how do these vaccine injuries happen. Uh, in the U.S. CDC VAERS system, there's over a million vaccine injury reports that have been certified by the CDC. Sadly, 
uh, over 21,000 of them uh, resulted in death. Over 350,000 resulted in hospitalization or urgent visit. And then well over 30,000 now have left people permanently disabled. And I think a lot of the neurologic syndromes, and I've seen some of them in my clinical practice, and they are wide ranging, which is interesting, very wide ranging. Um, I imagine some of those syndromes, uh, in fact, end up as permanent disabilities. <clears throat> the permanent disabilities that I've reported include both central nervous system injury syndromes, but also peripheral nervous system. So for instance, I have a young woman who's a mother trying to take care of her family. She's a professional. Uh, she took uh, uh, the, the uh, one of the messenger RNA vaccines, and now she has a permanent radial nerve palsy that emanates from the deltoid muscle down to the arm. Her arm doesn't work the same anymore, and I was I was forced to fill out a permanent disability form. And I wonder if that case, if it's just tremendous local production of spike protein, and again, this endosomal uh, method of transport, this kind of neuronal transport. At some point in time, the spike protein has to get uh, uh, very proximal to nerves and Schwann cells and to axons and start causing damage. And I imagine Dr. Sanoff could take it from here. Right. Well, well I think that's what's going wanna, on is with those exosomes. I'd like to ask one question first here. So we've seen, and especially in the VAERS database, that we do have a much increased adverse event uh, uh, response to this vaccine than we've seen before. Um, I don't think there's any question of that. So what I'm wondering is, with all these adverse events and reactions, is it not normal for the manufacturer of that drug to attribute those to the drug itself until they can prove otherwise? Or are we supposed to have to prove, um, are, are we supposed to have we're, prove we're right when we have a reaction and it's and we, we assume it's attributed to that uh, Chris, I have a lot of experience in, in drug safety. I've chaired over two dozen safety monitoring boards and FDA and the NIH on this. So this whole issue of, of a vaccine <coughs> and causality needs a needs a little bit of question. As a general principle, drug, anything that 30 days after the administration of counts. I mean, it doesn't matter if we think it's directly causal or not. It counts in every single safety assessment. And, and in fact, it counts on a drug label. Uh, so there's a lot of drugs that, that say, you know, certain side effects are simply because it has within this 30 day window of being administered. You know, with vaccines, remember, F, uh, FDA guidance on vaccines said anything that happens within 24 months, 24 months, because it's a vaccine, it's not a, like a, and then with gene transfer technology uh, platforms, like these are, these are classified as genetic treatments. The, the number is five years, is five years. So Chris, it's, it's anything that happens within this time window from a regulatory perspective is of interest. And it's not a matter of doing an exercise on, on uh, you know, somebody's opinion on causality, because um, at, at this point in time, you know, we won't know until many years later after all the mechanisms are put together. All I can tell you right now is the best analyses of causality have been done on death, and which is the most serious event. And as an epidemiologist, what we do in drug safety, we, we apply what's called the Bradford Hill criteria for causality. And basically it starts out with, is there a dangerous mechanism of action? Is it conceivable these vaccines 
produce a toxic substance in the body that could cause death? The answer is unequivocally yes. So we check that box. The second box is, do we have a large number? You know, have we had two deaths or have we had 20,000 deaths? The answer is we have a large number. So we, we check that box. The third analysis is, uh, uh, do we have um, uh, internal validity? <coughs> well, when the VARES analysis <coughs> data were analyzed by, um, by McLachlan and colleagues, and they coded, they internally coded all the reports back in April uh, by causality, two different reviewers, and they tried to come to agreement. They came up with 86% of the time, there was no other cause to explain the death outside of the vaccine. So now we check that box, internal validity. Um, th then we ask external validity. Uh, you know, is there agreement outside of theirs? Do, is it seen elsewhere? Well, yeah, it's the exact same thing as seen in the yellow card system in the UK and seen in the uterus system in Europe. So I can tell you as we sit here today, the Bradford Hills, you know, tenets of causality have been fulfilled. There's no doubt about it, the vaccines uh, and that analysis certainly caused death. And I bet we will come very uh, in line with the same things for the neuro neurologic, cardiac, the immunologic and hematologic abnormalities. I, I, I don't think it's gonna be uh, a, a difficult causality type of argument to uh, to come up with here. And my position is I, I really hope we don't see that. I really, really do because, you know, I think people have suffered enough. However, it's going to be very bad for those who have uh, ignored the, the red flags and bypassed safety mechanisms in order to promote this vaccination crusade, I call it. Um, if we start seeing these things, uh, in, 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 an, in an ongoing basis, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have some very, very tough questions to answer. And I certainly want, wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Well, Chris, yeah, just think about the randomized trials program. <clears throat> in the randomized trials, the Johnson & Johnson program was paused for one neurologic event. One. So the public program is no less important than the randomized trial the public program should have been paused for the very first neurologic event. I mean, we should so have hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of neurologic events to accrue. So what the difference is the randomized trials had data safety monitoring boards. And in the public programs, there, there is no safety mechanism. There's actually no oversight by experts who have uh, expertise in data safety and monitoring, none. It's an unmonitored program. And, and that's the reason why the safety events continue to accrue. So it seems to me that this, it may not be about our health. Um, for instance, my, my uh, sister-in-law, she decided to take the jab for her to keep her job as millions of other people have done. She had a pretty nasty adverse reaction, an allergic reaction. And she, we had to call the ambulance and she was in the hospital for her, you know, a, a couple night, a couple nights throughout the week, and still gets headaches, and it was not good. Um, she got a medical exemption, which was very difficult. Our health service authority, Alberta Health Services, actually had to apply to get her a medical exemption with the drug manufacturer's blessing. And when she got that exemption, uh, the employer she worked for said, "Well, we don't recognize exemptions. Either get the jab, or we're going to replace you." Wow. And to me, that's not about health. Um, 
it's something completely different and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna share my opinions on what I think that is it doesn't really matter what matters right now is that people are uh, people are sick and they need proper treatment and they need to be able to make a choice on whether they're going to accept that risk or not that's just my personal opinion um, so dr. Seth uh, what what else have you got there that was <laughs> I gotta say that's it's absolutely terrifying what you're saying. Um, even even though I don't completely understand everything you're saying, I get the big picture that the the mechanisms within the vaccine have the potential to do things within our body that aren't intended and are not in our best interest and have nothing to do with their health. Is that a good uh, kind of sum up of it? Absolutely. And I think it's really uh, so many diseases. I've only so far just mentioned Parkinson's, but there are many other neurological neurodegenerative uh, diseases like Alzheimer's and um, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and CJD, Kurzfeldt-Jakob, which is the human prion disease. And there's evidence in VAERS that, um, these, that, that these vaccines are, are far more, there have many more cases in VAERS of these diseases and of symptoms of these diseases, like immobility for Parkinson's or difficulty swallowing, which is an early symptom of Parkinson's, or this olfactory nerve, you know, having loss of a sense of smell. That's a very early symptom of future Parkinson's disease. And there are, it is just huge. It's 36 times as many cases uh, in the VAERS database for the COVID-19 vaccines in, in the one year, less than a year since they've been on, uh, in the database, 36 times as many cases of uh, loss of a sense of smell as there are in uh, over the 31 year history of the database for all of the other vaccines put together. That is a huge signal. And that is a very um, important precursor to Parkinson's disease. And so the reason is because it's, I think, is because, it, because it's not being the, the virus. It's, it's clear the virus gets into the nose and causes that. That's a very common symptom of this virus. So it's very good at messing up the olfactory nerve to cause the, this damage. But the vaccine is not being administered through the nose. It's coming into the arm. So how does it get all the way up to the nose to cause those problems? I think it's through those exosomes, traveling on the, on the vagus nerve and then going along the olfactory nerve and damaging uh, the, the neurons that respond to sense of smell. And so I think it's just, and I, I, I want to mention also uh, cancer. And I've been doing research with a, a wonderful collaborator, one of whom is Peter McCullough, uh, on the issue of, of these vaccines increasing the risk of cancer or of increased uh, development of a cancer you already have. It looks very uh, worrisome to me. And again, I looked at the various database and I looked at a whole bunch of different words that are related to cancer, like breast cancer, various kinds of cancer and, you know, um, my, all the different terms that you might find to be cancer terms. I thought of a lot of terms. I looked each one up, I tallied up the numbers for these COVID vaccines against all the other vaccines over the history of the database. So those two, it's an unfair comparison, right? All these vaccines, you think of flu vaccine every year for many, many years, and all the other vaccines the kids get over 31 years, that's this control group. And then the other one is just the COVID-19 vaccines over one year. And they went out big time. Overall, the average was uh, two times as many cases in the COVID uh, database, data, uh, data sets related to COVID two times as many cases related to all these different can, uh, can, terms connected to cancer compared to the other, all the other vaccines together over 31 years. And so we're working out the mechanism by which these vaccines would cause uh, cancer and cause whatever cancer you have already to become more virulent. So that's another big worry. I think that we're going to see 10, 20 years from now, we're going to see uh, younger and younger people getting these degenerative diseases 
getting cancer, getting neurodegenerative diseases, getting heart issues. We're going to see it happening in younger and younger people and more and more frequently. And we won't necessarily connect it to these vaccines because that, you know, maybe we'll just have this period of time in which we're administering all these booster shots. And then I think we're going to shut it down. I'm hoping that's the case. I think it's going to be shut down and I hope it's going to be shut down soon because they have but, to wake up and realize that they're doing a tremendous amount of damage. Because I think it's important for our listeners to understand that the spike protein we understand actually is in the human body for many months or even over a year after each one of the, the shots. The spike protein is not easily cleared out. And I, I was uh, um, uh, really taken back when I read a paper from University of Pittsburgh uh, that I described the S2 segment of the spike protein having an interaction, a favorable interaction with the P53, the tumor suppressor gene, and BRCA or the BRCA gene, which is a gene uh, women know about for uh, female breast cancer and reproductive cancer. So it's possible that there's enough dwell time of accumulating spike protein for it to be oncogenic. And something like a P53 interaction would explain a whole variety of solid organ cancers either becoming uh, more evident or actually you know, having tumor progression uh, in patients with established cancer. Yeah, so and breast saying, cancer, by the way, was three times as much. It was one of the cancers that stood out, three times as many reports associated with the COVID vaccines compared to all the other vaccines over the entire history of the database. So you said there are papers, published peer-reviewed papers, that show how uh, this can interfere with our body's own defenses against cancer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when <clears throat> normally products would go through what's called oncogenicity testing, preclinical testing to see if in fact tumors formed in animal models, uh, et cetera. And, and you know, a lot of this was abrogated during the operation warp speed. And a lot of people think about a vaccine, you know, the antigen being in the body for a few days. And I think what the developers never envisioned is the fact that the spike protein was gonna be in the human body for many months, if not more than a year. Bruce Patterson has shown with the respiratory infection, the S1 segments recoverable in human monocytes up to 15 months after the respiratory infection. And I interviewed Bruce for the McCullough report, and he's got data now on those who received the vaccine. He said the difference is it's the S1 and the S2 segment in those who received the vaccine. And he can see it in the body for as long as he has samples in time after the injection. So it's a long lasting installation of spike protein in the human body with each and every injection of a COVID-19 vaccine. There's even the possibility of it becoming permanent because there is, and I've written about that in the paper that I wrote with Professor, with Dr. Greg Nye, uh, we talked about the potential for the messenger RNA uh, in the vaccine to get converted to DNA and and integrated into the genome of the human host cell. That is entirely possible given the uh, biology of, uh, of how DNA and RNA work. And that's through something called retrotrans, uh, the retrotransposons. Let's see, what is it called? Retrotranscription, retrotranscription, retro meaning backwards to take RNA into DNA and then to, uh, and then to integrate that DNA into the human genome. So you could have individual monocytes, individual cells, immune cells, that have now got the capacity to keep on making the spike protein through their the DNA that they carry in their nucleus. That's a possibility. It hasn't been proven, but there is there's theoretical support for it. But it's a question that should be asked. It definitely is. And in so fact, there's a paper out of MIT that, that showed some evidence of that. Um, so with what you just said, and Dr. McCullough has said, pardon me for interrupting, uh, Dr. Seneff, 
if you knew that the chief medical officer of health of my province in Alberta here was watching this interview, uh, what words would you have for her or, or maybe even the minister of health? Because I did invite them and tag them both on the, uh, on the event post for this. I hope they're listening because they need to know about this. The, the uh, evidence is being very much censored uh, by the media, by the governments, by, of course, by pharma. Pharma has too much control over the governments today. And, uh, I think there's a lot of people who are involved in making money off of these vaccines. And I think they're very, very excited. The pharmaceutical industry is very excited about what they see as a great potential for the messenger RNA technology. And that's why they want desperately for this to work. And they, they knew they couldn't possibly get past the whole procedure of evaluation, except if they could create an emergency to make that happen. And I think they were hoping that the public would just embrace this technology and, and not notice, notice that it's causing all of these problems. And I don't have a problem with technology. As a matter of fact, um, I'm very impressed that they were able to even do that as fast as they did. Because while I personally, for me, I don't believe that the vaccine is the right choice. And I've listened to a lot of things that other doctors have said, including Dr. McCullough, about uh, natural immunity and what the vaccine does and which age groups it's, you know, it's, it's more relevant for. Um, but the vaccine is a very complex, almost ingenious invention like it is a a technical technological masterpiece would you say it, it is it, an incredible technological achievement yeah we created something in a very short period of time to try and help to help people to try and fight something but the problem is as wonderful that as that is um, there are questions arising about its safety and if if our mandate here what we hear in alberta all the time is we have to protect the healthcare system um Protecting the healthcare system to me means listening to men like Dr. McCullough talking about early treatment, preventing people from having to go to the hospital, uh, holistic health approaches. Um, and now listening to what you said, if we're going to protect our healthcare system in the future, we better be acknowledging these questions and getting some answers before we hurt a whole bunch of people and have our healthcare system overrun with results from some terrible mistakes we've made now. That's, That's certainly what I feel. No, I agree with you. I think it's going to be the case that we're going to have a whole lot of people with a lot worse disease than they had before. Um, and they're going to regret having gotten the, these injections. And, and um, it's just going to be a sad, sad thing to watch in the future because people won't be able to take it back once they've had it. But I hope they'll become smart. More and more people need to wake up and realize that they have to stop getting these jabs. They're going to too much damage is going to happen in the future if they continue to get uh, a booster shot every few months, which is, which is what it's looking like. And of course, they're not working anyway. Omicron is outsmarting the vaccines. So We're it becomes less and less um, clear why you would want it to begin with for the benefit. And when you see the, the risk benefit ratio shifting like that, and of course, it, the, the protection wanes very quickly, too. So people only have protected protection for a short time. And it seems to be that uh, the boosters are waning even faster than the original possibly because the Omicron is no longer matching. I and mean, that's certainly the case. The boosters aren't even working out the door because the Omicron is no longer matching. So it becomes foolish really to get these injections every few months uh, to fight a, a virus that's becoming, as you said, a much more benign uh, uh, disease, which is wonderful news. I think Omicron is a fantastic natural uh, vaccine in a sense, because it's causing massive uh, infections with people throughout the population. And everybody who gets Omicron now has protection against future disease. 
much better natural protection, which lasts a lot longer and is a lot more uh, sturdy in terms of it's, it's not just the spike protein, it's the whole virus. And it's not just the antibodies, it's the whole immune system. So it's a much, much better response to protect you from future exposure once you catch the disease. We should all be trying to get Omicron right now. I think we should feel very fortunate if we've managed to avoid the virus so far, like I have. And now if it's a mild disease, get that disease and in a sense, get a natural vaccine. I think that's what we should be doing. Of course, I think we should be eating healthy food, certified organic food, whole foods, stay away from the processed foods, get out in the sunlight, get your vitamin D, you know, exercise, stay healthy. That should be the mandate that the government should be screaming at us. You guys have got to get healthy. You've got to do healthy eating, healthy living um, to, to keep your immune system strong because that's the real way to protect yourself from the disease. Absolutely. So we just crept up over the uh, over the hour. So the witching hour. <laughs> the big yeah, witching you, hour. I'm, so sorry. I, I'm, I'm assuming you've got a, a dinner to attend to? Uh, yes, I do. So I think I'd better go or else my guests will... Uh... <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us. I mean, the, the people of Alberta and really we're, people see this all over Canada, we really, really appreciate um, the, the fact that you bother to go out of your way to speak up against things that could potentially harm us. Um, we're missing the other side of the story in almost every conversation that we see out of, out of the mainstream media right now. And it means a lot to me and millions of other people uh, to hear women like you, as intelligent as you, speak up on our behalf, even though you probably don't have to. I mean, you could probably be completely comfortable going along with the status quo, but you choose to push back because it's the right thing to do. So thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. Anytime, hopefully again, sometime in the in the future soon. And I'd be delighted. Really, with any luck, maybe I'll get to come to Hawaii and do this there. <laughs> I think the <laughs> that would be pleasant, nice wouldn't it? <laughs> That would be great. Hope to see okay. you here. Bye well, bye. Thanks again and have a great night. And uh, we're going to continue on with Dr. McCullough uh, until the conversation feels appropriate to end. So, good night, uh, Dr. Seneff, and thank you again. Thank you. Wow. Uh, every once in a while, we have the opportunity to hear from people, and sometimes the conversations are absolutely terrifying, like the potential for harm. Um, the potential to look back in 10 years and say, I can't believe we did that, is there's a big potential there. Chris, there's no doubt about it. That's the reason why I felt so motivated to write, you know, to America in the Hill in August of 2020, before the vaccines ever came out, that, listen, this is not looking like a good idea. Uh, th this is not a good idea to code for the dangerous spike protein, once we realized all the danger in SARS-CoV-2 is actually loaded in the spike protein, now we're going to create the genetic code for the spike protein. And then, uh, in a sense, you know, uh, commandeer our own cells to produce a potentially lethal protein against ourselves in the body. It seemed like a, a terrible idea. And then to load it on lipid nanoparticles, which distribute everywhere. And so we knew ahead of time, this, these were going to go to the brain, that we we're going to go to the ovaries, the adrenal glands, the heart. And so this idea of, you know, having a vaccine go to all these vital organs in the heart, we, you know, we don't plan on that with tetanus toxoid or the hepatitis B vaccine or meningococcal vaccine. <coughs> this idea of seeding 
the body's organs with the genetic code to produce a dangerous protein. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, before the vaccines ever came out, it sounded like it was a very, very bad idea. And it obviously uh, has turned out to be a catastrophe with the number of people who have died, the number of people are injured. And now what Dr. Seneff uh, is outlining is, is, is maybe the real danger, and that is the emergence of all these chronic diseases, particularly neurologic diseases. And it may not happen just with shot one or shot two, but once we get to boosters, we keep depositing more and more spike protein, loading the system with spike protein that we can't get out of the body. You take it on, but you can't get rid of it. And it itself directly causes disease. I guess I should get this out of the way right away. Um, I don't believe that you are, and I'm not, an anti-vaxxer by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I've heard you speak on this before, like you've been asked this question on uh, America Out Loud, which, by the way, that's a great show. Uh, I listen to it while I'm driving all over Alberta now. Um, so in your opinion, would it have been appropriate to roll out a vaccine for people that wanted it in groups that were at really high risk for you know, higher risk for, you know, the alpha, beta or delta variants of COVID, um, but not push it on everybody. Would Do, do you think it would have been appropriate to, to do that? Well, I, I don't think the genetic vaccines should have ever moved forward. I thought <clears throat> it was too dangerous of an idea to take a pathogenic protein and devise a genetic code for it. So Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, and AstraZeneca, they never should have gotten out of the gate. They should have been dismissed. Now, the antigen-based vaccines, I think, should have been fronted. Uh, and that includes Novavax. Uh, Novavax turns out that, that its uh, uh, results of vaccine efficacy against the extinct variants was every bit as good as Pfizer and Moderna. It's possible that Novavax could have played a role. And you can think about that like a tetanus shot. It's a fixed amount of spike protein, five micrograms, that the body can probably form an immune system with, but you, you know, probably not going to be overwhelmed with five micrograms. Uh, and, uh, and the body has a much better chance of localizing it. So I think the genetic, I think the, the antigen-based vaccines should have dominant, a predominant role, but only should have been applied to nurses, maybe high-risk seniors and nursing home workers. I estimated maybe two Americans should have gotten a vaccine only. Why? Why? Because that's really the group where hospitals were at sufficiently high risk to warrant an experimental vaccine. We would never want to mass vaccinate the population and then promote hyperdominant mutants like we did with the Delta strain. We actually, you know, we, with mass, we created the Delta outbreak, which prolonged the pandemic and harder because Delta was so hard to treat. And now it's clear that contamination has basically spurred the Omicron outbreak, uh, a very high peak. We have doubled the cases of COVID at the highest point at ever in the past. It's a very narrow peak. Fortunately, it's much milder. Now Omicron is like the common cold. And, and I can't imagine uh, that anybody would ever take a high-risk vaccine to prevent the common cold. It just, Linus Pauling said, don't do it. I wouldn't do it. And you're right, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've taken all the conventional vaccines and followed the vaccine schedules. I accept vaccines in my clinical practice. It's just that the genetic vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, were a bad idea to start out with. It's like a bad science experiment. And now people are being uh, basically being damaged greatly. They're being injured, acutely injured, like your sister, people getting permanent disability, and sadly, tens of thousands of people dying 
as a result of this bad science experiment. I remember you saying early on, um, you were promoting protecting the most vulnerable, encouraging people's health and early treatment. And I know hindsight is 2020, um, but I did hear you mention something about this on uh, one of your podcasts. If we had taken that path instead of putting all of our eggs in a uh, mRNA vaccine, where do you see us? Where would you see us being now? Well, now I'd, I'd upgrade it. You know, I, I had the two points of testimony. I think you saw in the, <clears throat> in the Rogan podcast. I'd upgrade it now to 95% of all the lives could have been spared with proper use of monoclonal antibodies and the oral drugs in sequence combination. The use of the, the nasal virucidal therapy is so effective now. We use povidone iodine and dilute hydrogen peroxide. Any Canadian can do that now. Uh, you know, we're not relying on ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine hardly at all now in Omicron. It's all intranasal therapy. It works great. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, part of this is a learning curve. You can't blame everybody. It's the fact that we learned as things went along how to manage the virus. Um, but I think if, if it was orchestrated, uh, you know, if I was leading the team in the U.S., I think uh, I could have put up on the board. I could have saved 95% of people who were lost. Wow. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on your uh, on your iodine nasal wash treatment that you just mentioned? There's a lot of people that have been asking that question, and uh, I've been directing them to your actually directing them to your podcast because it's very it's very well laid out. But if you don't mind just speaking on that for a moment, that'd be great. Sure. Anybody wants to learn, go to America Out Loud Talk Radio McCullough Report, and then uh, search on McCullough, and you'll see. There's I did a couple on of them uh, uh, about using <coughs> the uh, nasal washes. So. Uh, the lead nasal wash is povidone iodine, which is the brown betadine solution that doctors use in the ER to sterilize wounds. That's used for external use, by the way. It's also used in, in ophthalmic, uh, uh, you know, eye drops, uh, ophthalmo, uh, ophthalmological applications for eye drops. And so it can be used in the nose and the mouth, provided you don't swallow it, and provided it's dilute. So we take a 10% povidone iodine solution, which is a standard bottle of betadine. It's about $5 on Amazon, huge bottle. And uh, just take half a teaspoon, Chris, in a shot glass of water, which is 1.5 ounces. And uh, just take a little a little bulb syringe or just a, a little pumper spray bottle. You can, get, you can get those on Amazon too for uh, about $2. And uh, over the sink, kind of start pumping it up in the nose until you feel the liquid there and then go ahead and sniff it back to the very back of the throat and spit it out. And you kind of have to choke on it a little bit in order to really get that soft palate and then do it on the other side and then repeat it. So do it on, on both sides. And then the rest of the shot glass, go ahead and gargle with it for 30 seconds and spit it out. That's a very effective approach. That's called virucidal oral and nasal rinses. Uh, uh, we do it twice a day for prevention. If you're out seeing a lot of people on sales calls and you want to prevent COVID, and during active treatment, we crank it up to every four hours while awake. And there are now 12 clinical studies showing this dramatically reduces the intensity and severity of COVID-19, dramatically reduces the risk of hospitalization and death. 12 clinical studies show this, Chris. And if someone can't tolerate iodine, every so often, I had an iodine allergic patient the other day, and it's not a serious allergy, but I could tell she, she wasn't tolerating it. We can use uh, hydrogen peroxide. Now the dilution there is one to three. So that'd be three quarters of a teaspoon. Again, a shot glass of the water, 1.5 ounces, and the same technique of squirting it up in the nose. Uh, sometimes 
Uh, the solutions sting a little bit. Almost feels like you have pool water in your nose. So you may want to put just a pinch of salt in the solution. That's what I do. You make it more physiologic like saline. I have to tell you, this has been the single greatest advance. Omicron replicates in the nose 70 times that of Delta. It, it, and Omicron doesn't invade the body. So the source of the fever is in the nose. The source of the, the symptoms, the headache is in the nose. And we need to zap the virus in the nose. When I was fielding some text messages during the call, I was actually just sending them that little handout where I showed my setup on my countertop, where I show the Povidone iodine. I bought the generic one myself, Chris, on Amazon for five bucks. And then either a bulb syringe or a spray bottle. I bought the spray bottle for two bucks and, and use that as the main COVID defense. I think every Canadian ought to have povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide in the house. Don't wait until you get COVID. Have it in the house and start immediately. Uh, it turns out that dentists and uh, ENT doctors have been doing this for sinusitis anyway. This works on the common cold anyway. This works on uh, Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus infections anyway. So th this is common treatment. We're just now applying it in COVID-19. So if there are safe and effective treatments that don't require hospitalization, um, that's a bonus because we protect the healthcare system. And I found that it's our job now to protect the system that's supposed to protect us, but that's another story. Uh, as with that said, and, and how you're, you're talking about what Omicron looks like in, a, like in a clinical setting with patients you're seeing, it doesn't sound that scary. Should we be scared of, of, of Omicron? I don't think we should. Omicron is, uh, we have data now. I certainly have my professional opinion, which is basically like a common cold. I haven't anywhere, anywhere near Delta, and I've even managed somebody up to age 98. I can tell you right now, <coughs> I don't think Omicron is, uh, <coughs> is a risk. Uh, but even if it was a severe case, it's easily managed. Uh, we have data from uh, 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 Abdullah and colleagues from South Africa showing even, even the cases, the straight cases that got hospitalized with Omicron in South Africa, the, the inpatient mortality rate was 1%. And they don't do any early treatment. So if we do any early treatment at home, I guarantee the overall mortality rate far less than 1% for Omicron. I don't think we need to worry about hospitalizations uh, or deaths. I was just looking at the U.S. hospitalization data, which which are estimates from the CDC. And it looked like in children, there was a little bit of a panic uh, the children were being uh, hospitalized, but but nobody was seriously ill. And the curves are just falling off right now, right, right now as well. So I, I think Omicron, I agree with Dr. Sanoff, it's almost like a blessing in disguise. It's like a Mother Nature's natural booster. There's not going to be that many people left who are still COVID uh, susceptible and certainly no need for, for vaccines. The vaccine mandates can all be dropped now. Uh, the vaccines can be pulled off the market. We don't need them. Uh, and then we can we can do a postmortem on the program, figure out what went wrong. Why were so many people injured and, and passed away after the vaccines? we got to find out. And the big question I have, uh, apart from that, is why are our authorities, like, for instance, my CMOH, uh, the Premier of Alberta, Prime Minister of Canada, why are they forcing us to take a path that isn't effective as a way to buy our rights and freedoms back um, for something that most of us could easily treat at home? And you've shown that. You've shown that in a clinical setting with your patients throughout the pandemic that you were able to treat your patients and keep them out of the hospital. Am I correct? Absolutely. We were able to demonstrate that papers, this is the, with the primordial protocols, the very simple protocols now with uh, GSK monoclonal antibodies and the new Pfizer Merck drugs. Uh, for sure, we're going to be better, but the original papers by Proctor, by Derwand and Zelenko, by Diddy, 
Pierre Rialt, Matthew Milian, uh, different areas uh, in the world, three different <coughs> all showed it worked, 85% reductions in hospitalization and death. And I, I think all the additional advances I mentioned give us that extra 10 points. Uh, now Omicron's easier. Uh, you know, we the, the problem is effectively handled at this point in time. That's the reason why the vaccines need to be dropped. There shouldn't be any limitations of personal freedoms. It's no different than a common cold. Uh, the premiers and other people can can you know focus on other uh, issues they need to attend to, but this this healthcare issue is effectively over. It would be nice if they would just take their fingers out of our lives, let us make our own choices, and get on with it. Because you're right, there are a lot more pressing issues that we have to deal with right now. Um, this shouldn't be our top priority. One question that popped up, and I remember hearing you speak about this uh, in Alberta. Here, there has been a very uh, fiery debate about natural immunity. And I know that uh, natural immunity has seen Omicron breakthrough, as has vaccinated immunity. Um, but there's there, there's one there's one question I saw pop up on the feed here, and that was, I thought natural immunity only lasted for five months. Now, as far as I'm aware, there were some studies done about uh, regarding natural immunity that were only go that were only on for five months. Uh, they stopped the study after five months, and then they said natural immunity lasts five months. Um, but what they failed to, and, and this is something you touched on, they failed to talk about uh, T cell retention. Um, do you mind just speaking on that a little bit for the people that are wondering about how immunity works? Right, so immunity has two major divisions. One is called humoral immunity, that's antibodies. <coughs> the other is cellular-based immunity. That's T cells, B cells, natural killer cells, macrophages, other defense cells. And what we know with this virus is just like SARS-CoV-1, uh, that the immunity is lifelong. So with, with uh, SARS-1, uh, an individual today couldn't get SARS-1 again because it's lifelong. Just like with the wild type alpha and beta, you can't get it a second time. The body actually gives lifelong immunity. What happened with Omicron is it basically broke through the immunity largely because it doesn't invade the body. So the body's immune system is holding up. It's just not allowing invasion. And uh, so Omicron did break through, uh, but it, this, this, this it just basically uh, is reassuring news that uh, no matter what antibodies that we can measure, we can't measure all the antibodies, by the way. Like today in the office, I measured IgG and IgM against the spike protein, and I measured IgG and IgGM against the nucleocapsid. Just dozens of proteins, dozens. I, I can't measure, you know, the, 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 those assays don't exist. There are hundreds and hundreds of T cell <coughs> responses. We can only measure one in what's called the T detect test. We have to basically have confidence that our mother nature's natural immune system is there. It's very robust and, and complete. Our laboratory assessments of it are just, are, are really are tiny little representations of a much bigger process, this process of natural immunity. And it is robust. The one nice thing about natural immunity is if someone gets Omicron, it can be as brief as a few hours of warmth. That's it. Some people don't even feel it. There's a recent estimate out that about 40% of Omicron infections, you don't even feel because the natural immunity basically is held up. So I think the naturally immune do the best. I think second best are those who've received a vaccine. I think it's a pretty, Omicron's a pretty mild course. And it's my clinical experience that those who are still COVID naive, and there's very few people of that left in the United States we have 330 million inhabitants. You know, CDC tells us 146 million are already naturally immune. And we already have 200 million have taken a vaccine. So there's very few 
unvaccinated susceptible people left, but those few that I'm aware of, uh, Omicron has been a little bit of a rougher syndrome. Again, nothing close to being hospitalized, but some of those patients have required treatment with uh, several oral drugs in combination. People do get sick. It happens all the time. It's been happening since we were, uh, since we've been on the planet, but I really don't believe that it warrants destroying lives, economies, businesses, relationships, families. And that's, uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. So I, I hope there are some people watching in positions of authority who really, really take your words to heart because the first step to uh, getting back to a place where we're, we're protecting our health is stopping all of this so we can actually focus on our health, focus on our relationships and uh, just start living as normal human beings again. And with that said, there's a, there's a bunch of questions that have come up here. Have you got a few more minutes to answer a couple of yeah, questions? Let, let, let's try to tackle them really quickly. I saw one, Chris, about uh, is there any way to detox from the spike protein? The answer is no. Right now, uh, once it's in the body, it looks like it gets sequestered either intracellularly in monocytes in the spleen or in exosomes, no detox methods uh, available. Uh, what else do you see there, Chris? Uh, what else we got here? Okay. Oh, this is a, this one's a little bit scary, but we all know what's going on. It's kind of an elephant in the room, so we may as well talk about it. Dr. McCullough, they're killing people in hospitals here in Alberta because they are not giving them the right treatment. How do we change this? The hospitals are committed to protocols. In a recent review by <coughs> Christine Burns, published in JAMA, she, from the Academy Group as a review group, she's concluded that the hospital protocols are not trustworthy. This is a very important. What she means by that is they don't offer uh, uh, expert review, a commitment to updating. They don't offer uh, any good description of risks and benefits. So she concludes the hospital protocols are no good, basically. So families needed to demand what's called shared decision-making, that the families and the patients get to decide and share decision-making. And, and I think the key concept here is we should use medication reconciliation. You know, we use a broad array of drugs as an outpatient. They should all be continued inpatient. We should use monoclonal antibodies inpatient. We should be doing the oral nasal washes inpatient. You know, hospitals don't do that. Uh, we should be uh, uh, giving uh, the other oral drugs. We use uh, colchicine. Uh, we use uh, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or now the uh, Pfizer or Merck drugs. They should be continued inpatient. Uh, we should use doxycycline or azithromycin as we normally do, or if they want to use a intravenous doxy <coughs> or azithro, that's fine. Uh, they should use uh, oral prednisone. I think dexamethasone is a really weak uh, uh, steroid. It's, uh, it's a glucocorticoid. It's not effective. Should use IV solumedrol, oral prednisone, full dose oral aspirin, and then, uh, and then subcutaneous lomalacoid heparin, one milligram per kilogram. Uh, every 12 hours. So the families can basically make a list of drugs. They can go to um, uh, America Out Loud Talk Radio and McCullough Report. I've recently just updated the McCullough Protocol or just, you know, go to the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons or Truth for Health Foundation, and you can get these uh, protocols and write down the list of things that you want and start to demand them because the hospital protocols that they're sticking to are no good now. Uh, that's, that's now clearly understood. No wonder people are not doing well. And they should get, they, in my opinion, uh, in, the, in the hospital, the patients are undertreated. Uh, I mean, these are potentially fatal syndromes. Hopefully we won't have any more with Omicron, but if we get a rare one, 
they should be much more intensively treated. Here in Alberta, if you go to the hospital prevent, or presenting with COVID symptoms and test positive, they basically tell you to go home and come back when you're blue. There's never a discussion about health, uh, vitamin D, anything, nothing. Just go home, come back when you're blue. And I've heard these stories because I've become a hub of information somehow in Alberta here. You go to the hospital, uh, they put you on uh, possibly some steroids, usually prednisone or something like that. And you spend your time in the hospital with your breathing getting worse and worse, and they try and push you onto a ventilator. There is no talk about any treatment, and it is extremely frustrating. I've had a lot of families reach out to me throughout this whole thing, asking uh, how do they get treatment for their loved ones? How do they get them ivermectin? And how do they get them the McCullough protocol? And my answer is always the same. Once they're in the hospital and they're on a ventilator, I mean, they're, it's in God's hands, right? Uh, which is unfortunate that our, that our healthcare system here in Alberta is following that protocol because it is literally killing people. Well, Chris, uh, it's happening in the United States. Keep your eye on a dramatic case uh, that uh, a patient soda and uh, media scientific correspondent Stu Peters and uh oh, we lost Dr. McCullough. As soon as Dr. McCullough mentioned Stu Peters, he froze up. Well, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties there. Uh, Dr. McCullough is linking in from Dallas, Texas. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or possibly the storm that we're experiencing here in central Alberta. Um, I'm going to resend a link to him right now and I'll see if I can get him back. If not, then I guess we'll have to wrap up. Uh, there are a couple questions that people have asked that I can answer. Um, and if, if you have other questions and we can't get Dr. McCullough back, please head out to um, America Out Loud, and look for Dr. McCullough's podcast. Uh, there is a ton of information there, a ton of good information. All of the things, all of the questions that I've seen pop up on the feed here, um, he answers those in his podcast. And in addition to that, if you look at some of the things he's doing in the United States, I mean, this is a doctor that's testifying before Senate hearings uh, on behalf of people who are um, being left behind due to this whole COVID fiasco. There's Dr. McCullough back again. I think that was my my router telling me <clears throat> I need to get off and start doing patient prescriptions. So, okay. yeah, I think well, I'm going to get off. There's but only two more questions there, and they're both very quick. I've heard you answer okay. them both before. So okay. let me just pop those up here real quick. The first one is to do with shedding. I hear a lot of people concerned about shedding. Um, I know the answer you're going to give, but if you don't mind just speaking on that, uh, that would be yeah. awesome. You know, still hasn't been a published study on shedding. Dr. Banzel has published, as well as Dr. Senoff now, the the how oh, the spike protein travels in exosomes. <clears throat> makes trap makes sense it's going to be in saliva and in body secretions, uh, but there's still yet the scientific publication showing that it really does anything impactful to the next person. What's your next question? So don't be scared. Viral load's not that high, so it's not. No, I mean, I recommend no kissing, no sexual contact for a month. But you know, I have it. I think that we're gonna have to leave it there. What's the last okay. one? Okay, last one. I've still got loss of smell and phantom smell since COVID infection four months ago, uh, and I think that's supposed to say. And I have a strong link to disease. What do you recommend to be proactive? Now I'm gonna take this a step farther and say proactive against COVID and any other disease in our in our day to day lives. 
Well, let me tell you, this loss of taste and smell, because the virus is in the nose, people keep forgetting it's a nose infection. The virus is replicating the nose. If people don't do nasal washes, I bet this person didn't do any nasal washes. The virus replicated there for two weeks and fried the olfactory nerve. That's going to take a long time for that to come back. People have to realize this is a nasal infection. You've got to get up there and kill it in the nose. Very important. Okay, I got to get going. Right on. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. McCullough. It was a pleasure. And uh, from the uh, thousands of people that uh, watch, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us here in Alberta. And we would love to see you here. If you happen to be heading up this way, uh, please reach out and we'll be very accommodating and hospitable. Okay, I'll do. Bye-bye. Okay, good night. Well, there you go. Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Uh, in my newfound crusade for science and answers. Um, I'm going to do that as much as I can. I'm going to reach out to people who know what they're talking about, um, who have seen clinical evidence um, to back their statements. And I'm going to bring that to you. And hopefully people in Alberta watch it who have some authority to make some changes because we really need some changes. We can't live this way anymore. We can't be segregating society over a vaccination that does not work. Um, for a virus that we're all going to get and as of now isn't much worse than a cold and yes i do know that COVID has affected people uh, pe people's health it has taken some people but if you bother to take the time um, to understand what really happened there and who's dying with COVID, it becomes clear very very fast that we made a big fuss about something that isn't really all that abnormal. The only thing abnormal the last two years has been our government's response to the problem. We've never had this response before and uh, it's become pretty clear that it was the wrong response. So anyway, thank you all very much for watching. That was another long video, but I hope it was worth it. And uh, if you have any other questions, you can for Dr. McCullough, um, before you ask the questions, check out his podcast. Listen to what he has to say. If you got to drive, if you're driving somewhere, it's going to take you an hour. Listen to one of his hour-long podcasts because it really is a wealth of information. And the more information we can get out there, um, well, the less scared people will be, and the better chance we have of changing something in this province and in this country. So, thank you again very much, and have a good night. Stay safe. 